0: Philippians chapter number two today is where we're going to be looking and what is one of my favorite Christmas passages, though it's not something that is usually associated with Christmas time. But it really is all about Christmas because it's about when Jesus became a man, when he came to earth so that he could live. And ultimately, so that he could die for our sins, be buried and rise again. Usually, when we read the Christmas story, we read in the early chapters of Matthew or Luke, and you know, we read about Bethlehem, and we read about the shepherds and the wise men and everything. But really, Philippians chapter 2 is the is the theological passage, if you will, about Christmas. Really emphasizing just how much the Lord Jesus Christ gave up for us. The term for the birth of Christ, the theological term, is the incarnation. It's when God became man. And to be honest, it's a doctrine that is somewhat perplexing to us, something we're never going to completely understand this side of heaven. How could God, the Creator become man, the creature. And how could he be 100% man while still being 100% God? These are mysteries that at some point, though we strive to understand them as best we can, that we simply just have to accept by faith. Some people, though, because it is difficult to understand, they draw incorrect conclusions. Some people conclude that Jesus was not God eternally, that He became God by living a perfect life. But the Bible does not teach that. Some people reject the idea that Jesus is God at all and say, well, He's just a good man or a a great prophet or a good religious leader. But the Bible teaches that Jesus is God. He was God in eternity past, and He will be God in eternity future. Jesus is God, and over the next few weeks, as we go through the month of December, we're going to take time to look at this uh, portions of this chapter in, in detail. In and if you want to give a title to this little series, I'm calling it "The Christ of Christmas." The Christ of Christmas. Let's begin by reading in Philippians. Chapter 2 and verse number 1. "'If there be, therefore, any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies, fulfill ye my joy, that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through strife or vain glory, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem other better than themselves.'" wherefore God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name that is above every name that at, uh, of, of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let me read verse 10 again, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray that you would help us to be able to focus this morning on you and on your word. I pray that we would not be distracted by cares and concerns. That we would not let our minds wander to things that are not most important. Because what's most important right now is that we see our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ... Who he is and what he has done for us. So, Lord, we pray you would answer this prayer for your honors and your, your honor and your glory. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning we're going to be looking at the first six verses of this chapter, primarily focusing on verses five and six, to understand the truth of the deity of Christ. Understanding the truth about the deity of Christ is important if you're going to fully appreciate what Jesus did for us. He willingly set aside the glory and the honor that is rightfully His as God in order to be born as a man and die for us. He did not become less God, but rather He chose not to exercise the rights and the privileges that were His as God for a time. No one has ever given up as much as Jesus gave up for you and for me when He came to this earth. And as we think about the cute little baby in the manger, we must remember that He was no less than the eternal Creator God of the universe who was born so that He might save us from our sin. I want you to notice with me, first of all, from verse number 5, the thinking of Christ. The thinking of Christ. The verse says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. What he goes on to say from verse number 5 and verses 6 through 11 is what this thinking, this mind of Christ was all about and what it what it ultimately led Christ to do. But we need to go back to those opening verses again to see the context of why the Apostle Paul, who wrote the book of Philippians, is giving this example of, of Christ. What was the purpose of what he's saying here? We go back to verse number 1, and he says, If there be any, therefore any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies, fulfill ye my joy that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, there's that word, note it, the word mind there. In lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. So Paul here is writing to the Philippians, and he's encouraging them to be humble, to be selfless, to be generous, and to be unified as believers. So there are three main instructions that he gives here. In verse number two, he instructs the believers to have unity in Christ, to have unity, to live in harmony with one another. He he highlights the things that we have in common, verse number two, having the same love, being of one accord and of one mind. You know, as believers, we have so much more in common than we do in differences. Now, we are all unique. We are all a little different, and that is by design. God's intention is that we not, not that we be carbon copies of one another, but that Our differences, rather than causing divisions, help us to create harmony. We understand the concept of harmony, right? Uh, When you hear the choir sing and you've got the different parts, that's harmony. When you hear a group of musicians play and they're not all playing the same thing, but it sounds good together, that's harmony. And what the Bible, Bible teaches us is that as believers, though we're all different, we should be unified through Christ. We should exist in harmony with each other. And then there's, in verse number 3, a command for, for us not only to have unity, but to have humility. He said, Let nothing be done through strife or vain glory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. That's really uh, the crux of the issue here is, is you and I being humble enough to get along and humble enough to let others have the, have the uh, preeminence, to let others um, uh, be, as he says, esteem them better than themselves. Humility is so important for the Christian because we all struggle with pride. We all have the natural tendency to want our, to want to make ourselves look better than others, to want to be served by others rather than serving others. But, and and as verse three talks about, we all have the tendency to strive for vainglory, to want the recognition, to want the applause, to want the likes, to want the shares, to want the, to want everybody to look at us and think that we're something great. We're not to live our life that way. We're not to live our life for ourselves. We're to live our life for others. And then there's instruction that as believers we are to have charity. Verse number four, look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Charity in the sense that we are to give time and energy and attention to other people. Our life should be characterized by a willingness to give. To others, 1 Corinthians 13 talks about the characteristics of love. The word charity is used in that chapter over and over again, describing God's kind of love, a love that is characterized by giving. And at the end of that chapter, it says that there, there now abide three things, faith, hope, and charity. But the greatest of these is charity. When Jesus was asked, what is the most important commandment? He said, love God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Having a life filled with selfless love and willingness to give to meet the needs of others, to give our resources, to give our time, to give our energy, to give them our attention, that should be the characteristics of a Christian. And that's what Paul is writing to them here and saying, you need to live in unity with humility and with charity in your life. And so then he comes to verse number five and he says, let this mind, Be in you. Which mind? A mind of unity. A mind of humility. A mind of charity. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. He points to our Savior, and essentially he's saying the key to living a life of unity, a life of charity, and a life of humility is to think like Jesus thinks, because Jesus is the ultimate example of everything that is good. He's the ultimate example of unity, because Jesus lives in perfect harmony with the Father. When He was here on this earth, um, Jesus prayed in John 17... He's praying for the disciples and he says that they all may be one as thou father art in me and I in thee, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me and the glory which thou gavest me I have given them, that they may be one even as we are one. Jesus was in perfect harmony with the father. At no point has there ever been a disagreement between God the father, God the son and God the Holy Spirit. They have always been perfectly in union and in agreement with one another. And that's the kind of mind that we are to have. Notice how in the verses I just read there, Jesus said the key to our unity is that we be one with Him and the Father. It's not so much about you and I learning to get along with each other, it's about you and I learning to get along with God. And if you're getting along with God and I'm getting along with God, then we'll be getting along with each other, you see. He's the perfect example of unity. He's the perfect example of humility. We'll talk about this in a couple weeks as it states in our passage here, Philippians 2, that he humbled himself. But when you think about The what motivated the humility of Christ, it was all about going as low as He needed to go in order to meet the needs of others. Turn to Hebrews chapter 2 for a moment. Jesus was willing to go as low as He needed to in order to meet the needs of others. He placed the needs of others before Himself. He demonstrated this in His earthly ministry. And when Jesus was here on this earth, He did not live a life of luxury. He lived a a rather rough existence by anyone's standards. But He did that, as He said, because the Son of Man came not to be ministered to, but to minister. He came to be a servant of others. And Hebrews chapter 2 and verse number 9, talks about this humility of Christ. It says, But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that He, by the grace of God, notice this, should taste death for every man. That's the humility of Christ right there. That He was made low so that He could taste death for every man. He's the ultimate example of unity, the ultimate example of humility, and He's the ultimate example of charity as well. The Father so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. And God the Son loved the world so much that He gave His own life. He said in John 15, This is my commandment, that ye love one another as I have loved you. Greater love hath no man than this, Then a man lay down his life for his friends. Our choir sang this morning the song entitled, Love as I Loved. Those are the words of our Savior. As I have loved you, that is how we are to love others. Well, how did He love us? He loved us so much that He laid down His life for us. That is the greatest demonstration of love. To give not only of your time and your resources and your energy, but to give your very life. That's what Jesus did. But God commendeth His love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. If we're going to act like Christ, and show unity and humility and charity, then we must think like Christ. We have to let His mind be in us. And that is possible if you are a believer because if you have trusted Christ as your Savior, then Christ now dwells in you. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. When we think about Christ dwelling in us, to be honest, that's a truth that the implications of it are limitless. It literally changes every aspect of our life. And one of the things that that truth does is it assures us that we can think like Christ. Notice what this verse says, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 16. For who hath known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. If you know Jesus as your Savior, you have the ability to think like Jesus because Jesus dwells in you. I know when we consider this idea, well, how am I supposed to think like God the Son? Isn't that like way beyond my ability? Well, yes, it's beyond our natural ability. It's beyond what we could do in the flesh. But if Christ dwells in us, if we're believers, if we're saved, then we can think like Christ because we have the mind of Christ, you see. And it all starts with understanding this truth. That if we are going to act like Christ, we must think like Him. Let this mind be in you. I like the language there because it implies that thinking like Jesus is the new normal. And as a Christian, understand this. It is normal to think like Christ. It may not be average, but it's normal. A Christian who's not thinking like Christ is not acting like a Christian should act. A normal Christian should think like Christ. And the verse says, so just let this mind be in you. The idea is it will happen normally, naturally, if you're following the instructions of Scripture. It's not something that you have to manufacture. It's not something that you're going to achieve with human effort. It is something that you simply submit to God and allow Him to do it through you and in your life. Let this mind be in you. It's all about following God's leadership and not following the impulses of the flesh. The flesh doesn't want to think like Christ. The flesh wants to think selfishly. The flesh wants to think for vainglory. The flesh wants to think in discord and, and, and strife. That's what the flesh wants to do. We have to say no to the flesh and we have to say yes to the Spirit who leads us to think in such ways that produce unity, humility, and charity. But now back in our text, I want you to notice with me We've seen the deity of Christ, but now note, or excuse me, we've seen the thinking of Christ. Now we're going to see the deity of Christ. Verse number six, Paul is going to now show us just what Jesus did to demonstrate this thinking of unity, humility, and charity. And it begins with this understanding in the little phrase, who, speaking of Jesus, being in the form of God thought it not robbery to be equal with God. The phrase, being in the form of God, we need to focus on that for just a minute. What does that mean to be in the form of God? That's kind of a confusing statement. Does that mean that Jesus just kind of looked like God? Was He God-like? Was He just, you know, God-ish in His being? No, the word form there actually has the idea of the very essence of something and it's another way of saying that he was God in every way he was God through and through and this is really the crux of Paul's argument in this whole passage you can't miss this that Jesus is God he's the ultimate example of humility because no one has ever started from such a high place and gone so low No one has ever started from such a high place because there is one God and only one God. God in three persons, yes, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. But none of us will ever start from that high of a position. Jesus Christ, who being in the form of God, the very essence of God, God through and through humbled himself. Jesus was not a man who became God. That's a false doctrine. He was not a God who became man. That's not the right way to say it either. Jesus Christ is the God who became man. And this is one of the most important truths about Jesus, the fact that He is God. Not a God, but the God. If you do not accept the deity of Christ, then friend, you are not saved from your sins yet. Because if Jesus Christ is not God, then His death on the cross did nothing for your sin or mine. If He is not God, then He is just another man. And if He is just another man, when He died on the cross, He had to die for His own sins. And therefore, His payment would have only counted for Him and Him alone. Jesus Christ is god he he must be or else we are lost some claim that the doctrine of the deity of christ was fabricated by his followers in order to try and somehow give weight to their arguments as they formulated this new religion some people imagine that that's how it all came to be but nothing could be further from the truth in fact, when you look through the scripture from almost beginning to end, you find the deity of Christ is affirmed over and over and over again. I think of a very popular Old Testament passage. We think about this at Christmas time a lot is Isaiah chapter nine and verse number six. For unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulders. And his name shall be called wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father, the prince of peace. I remember talking to a couple of Mormons one time and I was explaining to them the difference between what they teach and what the Bible says. They teach that Jesus is a God, little g, and we're all get to be gods if we're good Mormons. That's their doctrine. And I was explaining to them, no, Jesus was not a God, Jesus is the God. And they wanted to argue with me a little bit, so I took them to Isaiah chapter 9 and verse number 6. I said, you're familiar with this verse probably, who do you think it's talking about? And they said, well, it's talking about Jesus, the Messiah. Okay, well, let's see what the verse says. It says, His name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God. And they said, oh yeah, we believe that because we believe Jesus Christ became a God and that we'll become God's too like Jesus was able to become a God. But we don't believe He's the same as God the Father. I said, oh really? Because the very next thing that this verse says Jesus will be called is the everlasting Father. I said, how can Jesus rightfully be called one and the same with the everlasting Father and not be? And I'll never forget their answer. We'll have to get back to you on that. That's what they said. The Old Testament makes it clear that Jesus is God. Jesus himself claimed to be God. If anyone ever tells you Jesus never claimed to be God, don't buy it, okay? Don't buy what they're selling because it's fake. Fake news. (laughs) Jesus absolutely claimed to be God. In fact, on occasion, they wanted to stone him for blasphemy because he claimed to be God. In one particular instance, in Mark chapter two, uh, it's the story of the healing of the paraplegic man. And Jesus said to the man, "Son, thy sins be forgiven thee." And you know what the religious leaders who heard that said to themselves? They said, "This. Why doth this man thus speak blasphemies? For who can forgive sins but God only?" Unwittingly, they got the point. What Jesus was saying when he said, your sins are forgiven, was in essence, I am God. And to prove that he is God and he had the right to forgive sins, he healed the man. He said, so that you might know that the Son of Man hath power on earth to forgive sins. I say unto thee, take up, rise and take up thy bed and walk. And the man walked. Jesus claimed to be God. In John chapter 8, Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, before Abraham was, I am. Why is that significant? Because I am is the name that Jehovah gave to Abraham when Abraham said, "Who am I supposed to tell them sent me?" Who am I supposed to tell them has sent me? They going when I go back to Egypt and the and the Israelites ask, you know, "Who are you and what do you think you're doing? Why do you think you're in charge? Who sent you here?" What am I going to tell them? And the Lord said, "I am that I am. Tell them that I am sent you." So when Jesus said, I am. Before Abraham was, I am. He was absolutely claiming to be God. Later, the night before that Jesus was to be crucified, He would be there in the garden and they would come to arrest Him. And Jesus would ask the question, Whom seek ye? And they would say, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus would answer. In our Bibles, our translators added a word, and in our Bibles, it reads, I am He. But in the original, it was simply, I am. And the Bible tells us when Jesus uttered those words, all of those men who came to arrest Him immediately fell flat on their back. He said, I am. Jesus Christ claimed to be God. No doubt you've, you've heard the it said before that Either Jesus is God, or He is a liar or a lunatic. He's either Lord, liar, or lunatic. Many people have, have, have written on this similar thought. One particular writer back uh, almost 100 years ago now, by the name of Watchman Nee, he, he talked about this in his book, Normal Christian Faith. He said, first, if he claims to be God, and yet in fact is not, he has to be a madman or a lunatic. Second, if he is neither God nor a lunatic, he has to be a liar deceiving others by his lie. Third, if he is neither of these, a liar or a lunatic, then he must be God. Those are the only three possibilities. Either he was a liar, he was a lunatic, or he is the Lord. Jesus claimed to be God, but you know the greatest proof of Jesus' deity was the resurrection itself. The resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ proved conclusively for all eternity that Jesus is God. Logic is great and being able to piece together bits of information is a wonderful skill, but ultimately God put the exclamation point on it at the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Before He rose again, Jesus prophesied that He would, asserting that He had the power to lay down His life and to take it up at will. In John chapter 10, verses 17 and 18, Therefore doth my Father love me, because I lay down my life that I might take it again. No man taketh it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have the power to lay it down. I have the power to take it again. This commandment have I received from my Father. Who else but God God could rightly say they have the power to lay down their life and their power to take it up again. Only God could do that. As Paul opened his letter to the Roman believers, he reminded them of this fact, the fact that Jesus is God and that it was proven by the resurrection. He said in Romans Chapter uh, 1, verses 3 and 4. Concerning His Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. The resurrection declares Jesus to be the Son of God. He is God. Who? Being in the form of God, he was a very, is the very essence of God, God through and through. And then the last phrase of verse six, back in Philippians chapter two, and this is where we'll end today. Thought it not robbery to be equal with God. Now, he's going to go on and talk about how Jesus humbled himself in coming to this earth, being born as a man and eventually dying. He's going to talk about the exaltation of Christ later in the the chapter. But here he makes a very important statement in this phrase when he says that Jesus thought it not robbery to be equal with God. Now, we're continuing in this same idea. What is Jesus thinking? His philosophy, how his mind was working. And one of the things that... What's going on is this particular thought, that it was not robbery to be equal with God. What does that mean? Well, robbery is when you take something that's not rightfully yours. If I were to go down to the gas station here and go in and give the cashier $20 to put some gas in the car, and on my way out I were to reach over and uh, grab a Snickers bar off the uh, rack and stuff it in my pocket and walk out, I would be guilty of robbery. Robbery because I took something that was not rightfully mine. I took something that I had not paid for. We know what robbery is. And so this passage says that for Jesus, He thought it not robbery to be equal with God, meaning that He was not robbing God of anything by being equal with God, because He is God. it's saying that he had every right to remain in heaven and enjoy all the privileges and glory that was rightfully his as God. He had every right to do that. It was not robbery for him to enjoy that. You know, many Bible translations say that Jesus did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. And I I just, I detest that translation of it. It's clumsy and it's a misleading interpretation. The point is that Jesus had every right to grasp it. He had every right to hold on to his position and the privileges that were his because he is God. He had every right to do that, but he chose to let it go for a time. He chose to set it aside temporarily. And it highlights to us just how much Jesus gave up to come to this earth. And the fact that He didn't have to do it, He chose to. Jesus gave up all the majesty, all the splendor, splendor, all the honor, all the worship, So that he could become man. It doesn't mean that he stopped being God in any way. And it doesn't mean that he stopped being equal with God in any way. Jesus Christ remained 100% God when he came to this earth. What it means is that there were certain privileges that were rightfully his that he chose not to enjoy and not to exercise for a time. For example, when Jesus came to earth for a time... He chose not to be omnipresent. For a time, he restricted himself to a human body. For a time, he chose not to always exercise his omnipotence. For instance, he got hungry. He got tired. He chose for a time not to always exercise that. And then we get, we start getting a little deeper and it gets a little confusing. For a time, Jesus chose not to always exercise His omniscience. Luke chapter 2 says that when Jesus was a boy, He increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Jesus Christ had to learn. How does the omniscient God of the universe have to learn 2 plus 2 is (laughs) 4? I don't know about you, but I try to figure that out and my head starts hurting. What what is that all about? It's about Jesus willingly giving up what was rightfully His for a time so that He could come to this earth and live and ultimately die for us. He had every right, because He is God the Son, to stay in heaven and enjoy all that was rightfully His as God. But He chose to let it go for a little while. And of all the things that Jesus endured from the mocking to the rejection and the physical abuse, the most incredible thing that Jesus endured is that He willingly set aside His glory so that He could become man. In John 17, Jesus prayed, O Father, glorify Thou Me with Thine own self, with the glory which I had with Thee before the world was. We will never understand how much Jesus gave up for us because no one has ever started so high and stooped so low. And why did He do it? For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. He did it for you and for me so that we might be saved from our sins. You know, Christmas should be a time that we reflect on who Christ is and what He has done for us. And we must first remember that He is more than a baby that was born in a manger 2,000 years ago. That is not when Jesus came into existence. Jesus is the eternal God, and thus He has existed since eternity past. He is the eternal creator of the universe. But He came to this earth, and He became the creature so that we could be saved from our sins. That is who Jesus is. He is God, but I ask you this morning, is He your God? He is the Savior of the world, but is He your Savior? If not, then accept Him today. And if He is your Savior, then give Him the glory that is rightfully His. Our Heavenly Father, we thank You for sending Jesus for us. Lord, during the Christmas season, we are filled and surrounded with reminders of all that Jesus has done for us. Though I'm afraid that we too often Don't actually stop and think about it. Lord, I pray that right now we would seriously ponder for just a moment all that Christ gave up for us. That our hearts might be filled with with praise and appreciation that You would get the glory from us. Lord, if there is someone in here today who has never accepted Christ as their personal Savior, Lord, I ask that right now the Holy Spirit would convict them of their sin and their need of a Savior. So much so that they would make the decision to trust Christ. Right now. And I pray these things in Jesus' name.